listening to the Prevailing Word Podcast. I'm Fred Rochester. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get right into today's message from the Word of God. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The mystery of godliness. Father, I thank you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Father, I thank you that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that there is no creature hidden from your sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Father, I thank you that the entrance of your word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Father, I thank you that your word, that every word of God is pure and you are a shield to those who put their trust in you. Father, I thank you that you desire truth in the hidden part and in the inner parts you will make us to know wisdom. In the inner part you will make us to know wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The mystery of godliness. As we all know, the the apostle Paul um, communicated to the church by way of letters, and this is one of uh, many letters that he had written, thirteen in all, and in these thirteen books is, I would say, an expounding on the very Gospels that we see in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But these letters went about the entire regions where churches uh, were established, and it was his way of communicating to the believers it was his way of communicating to the believers when he couldn't be there physically. In fact, letter writing was a regular thing, not only in the world, but also in the church. In fact, when you go over into the, don't turn there, but if you go into the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus told John to write these things of what is to was to happen, what is happening, what is to come. And the letters were a form of communication where people can readily see and hear additional teaching on the scriptures. Uh, these teachings of Paul and many of the apostles became the primary way to communicate to the body of Christ. The, uh, the church was better for it as a result of what they have written. In fact, uh, in the 13 letters that Paul had uh, shared with the church make up a great portion of the New Testament. So we're thankful that these letters were preserved in such a way that we now have a New Testament. And yes, they did and they were able to uh, get by with the Old Testament, but we thank God that the Lord put it on their hearts to put in additional scriptures so that way we can have a well-rounded view 
of the New Testament. So here we see uh, Paul giving what was perhaps one of the first indications of a, I would say, tenets of, of the faith. In fact, some of this was adopted in their apostolic creeds. And so uh, we thank God that they were able to uh, memorialize these, these things so that way we can have a copy and then it could be passed down from generation to generation. But notice back in verse 14, Paul said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So it wasn't enough just to write. Paul wanted to be with them in person. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. It's good to know that Paul wants a consistent conduct in the house of the Lord so that way people don't go all over the place and make up things and try to add them to uh, his words or other apostles, apostles' words. And all of a sudden it becomes doctrine. So we're grateful that, that Paul set the standard. We have the Gospels, we have the writings of Paul, 13 of them. Then we have the general epistles that begin with the book of Hebrews, of which we do not know who the writer is. Although some may say that it's, it's Paul, but we really don't know because nobody really knows except the Lord. You know, you have James, First and Second Peter. Uh, Jude in the book of Revelation which and Philemon's not not a um, not a general epistle it's part of the, the Pauline epistles um, but it's good to, to have these letters so that we can go back and see how the early church developed now notice that it said that you know that you that that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. There's a specific conduct. There's a specific behavior. There's a, spe a specific attitude or aptitude by which one is to behave in the church. In fact, one of the definitions of this Greek word anastrepho, which is spelled A-N-A-S-T-R-E-P-H-O, it means to behave self. You, you, you just can't come into the house of God and behave any kind of way. It's not allowed. You just can't come in and, and do what you wish and everybody be good with it. I mean, that's, I mean, how do you conduct yourself on the job? There, there's rules. How, how do you conduct yourself in your mama or daddy's house? There's rules, no matter how old you get. Mom and daddy got rules and guess what? Just because you up and grown doesn't mean that you outgrow the rules. And so it must be that there are rules in the house of God. In fact, if you were to study out the book of Leviticus, there was a, there was a standard by which the Levitical tribe were to perform their ministry of the temple. They just can't behave any kind of way and figure that it's okay with God. No. There are stricter rules in the book of Leviticus for the priests and they had to abide by it. So should it be any different for the church? The church must have a standard. There must be a way in which we conduct ourselves. But the conduct begins with the leader. And so Paul made sure that Timothy knew how to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So there is no other institution in the, wor in the world that is the pillar and ground. The word ground means a support, or as we would know, a foundation. The church is the pillar. Now we all know what a pillar is. A pillar is like a, a stanchion, if you will. That, that holds the roof and everything together. You take the pillar out, the, the whole building collapse. And so, 
The church is the same way. The church is the truth and is the pillar and ground of the truth. You take away a pillar, the building collapses. You destroy the foundation, the building collapses. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. This word mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, which is spelled M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And it means to shut the mouth. <laughs> A secret. The idea of silence imposed by initiation into religious rites. In other words, nobody else is supposed to know but the one that has the mystery and those who are associated with it. Now, if you're in Christ, the mystery has been revealed to us. As we study the scriptures, the, the mystery of God is unfo unfolds before our eyes. And so we're a part of an institution that has the mystery of godliness. This, this word godliness is the Greek word Eusebia, Eusebia, if you want to pronounce it that way, which is spelled E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. And it means piety, or especially uh, the gospel scheme. So the gospel's foundation is godliness, brought about by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This godliness is what Paul is listing here. The first thing that we see is that God was manifested in the flesh. Then he was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, that's number three. Number four, preached among the Gentiles. Five, believed on in the world. And then finally, number six, received up into glory. So basically, these six things make up the fullness of the gospel. But it's packaged as the mystery of godliness. So let's go down this list. God was manifested in the flesh. Go to the book of John, chapter 1. God was manifested in the flesh. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, That he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. And that's true. Some will say, well, what about Isaiah? Didn't he see the Lord sitting upon the throne? Yeah, he, seen, he saw him sitting upon the throne. But guess what? You got to get past the light and the fire to actually see the visage of God, the, the, the face of God. It's, it's covered with glory. And so the only way that we'll be able to see God's face is when the glory is either removed or lessened, if you will. Now, I remember when Moses wanted to see, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And so God said, no man can see me and live. So he put Moses in the cleft of the rock and he said, when I pass by, you'll see my hind parts, but my face you will not see. And the Lord passed by, and his glory passed by, and all Moses saw was the back of God. That's all he saw. He didn't see his face, because Moses would not have been able to stand in the condition that he's in, 
and live. Remember, he's in a fallen condition, like all men. Remember what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And besides, the tabernacle of Moses were, were, were temporary appeasement. It was only temporary until Christ came. For the, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus is the only one up to this point point in time was able to look upon the face of the Father I mean just imagine God looking at God well the Bible says the Lord said to my Lord so if you have a problem with Jesus being God well you gotta you, you gotta navigate and mitigate John chapter 1 verse 1 in, in the beginning was the word the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now when you see the Word was with God, the word with is the Greek word pros, which is spelled P-R-O-S, which means face to face. And Jesus is the only one that was able to see the Father face to face. Anybody that claims to have seen Jesus Look, if you claim to see Jesus, your life will be forever changed. Your sinning is up. Your lying, stealing, fornication, adultery, all that stuff is done. You're not going back to that. You, you claim to have seen Jesus? You know, we have a lot of people that claim to have seen him, but nothing really changed on the inside. They're still up to their old tricks. They're not living right. They're not doing right. They're not preaching the word right. So don't dare say I've seen him and you're still the same. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, which is the claim to, which is not just a claim, it's a declaration. I've seen him face to face. I'm God so I can see God. He has declared him. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He, confe he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now the prophet obviously is referring to Jesus because remember the word prophet you'll see again in the book of Leviticus chapter 18 where God, where, where Moses said, where God said to Moses that I will send my prophet to you. This prophet is the same right here. And he answered no, John the Baptist. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now see, automatically, if anybody knew the scriptures then, and John the Baptist says, I am the forerunner of Christ, they would have immediately would have just simply said, Then the one that you say you're not, you're just a forerunner? That must be him. That must be the Christ. That must be the prophet. And Jesus is not Elijah. Now in the book of Malachi and also in the book of uh, Isaiah, we see that, uh, th that John the Baptist is the forerunner, which is supposed to be the Elijah to come. The forerunner of Christ. And so here is a clear signpost. Now I like what, what John Howler had said uh, uh, a fellowship Bible chapel out there in, in uh, Sanbury, Ohio, I believe it was. And he said that uh, as the end time approach, we're going to see a whole lot of scripture fulfilled in a very short period of time. And that's true because it, it, it's compatible with how women give birth. That the contractions get stronger and they get closer and stronger until the birth takes place, till a child comes out.
I mean, this was, this was the same with when Jesus was walking the earth. And in three and a half years, hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament was fulfilled in a very short period of time. This one prophecy, they should have recognized that Jesus is, was the Messiah, but they even stumbled at that. As the prophet Isaiah said, and which is what we said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were, who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So let's go to another scripture. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, the second chapter, and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or an appeasement or an appeasing sacrifice for the sins of the people. Satisfying, that's what propitiation is, satisfying the just claims of the righteous and holy God. Satisfying the just and righteous claims of the holy God for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians the second chapter. Look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. See Christ is equal with God. And so that's why, you know, there's always the argument of those who claim that Jesus isn't equal with God. There is no way possible that they claim that there is no way possible that Jesus is equal with God because he came in the flesh. Sad to say, sorry to say, but that's why we talk so much about the, the birth, the virgin birth. Because life comes from man. The woman may provide the egg, but life comes from man. And so Christ couldn't have came from man because Mary was a virgin at the time Jesus was born. So where did he came from? Came from God. The Holy Spirit took God the Son and put him in the seed. The seed conceived and Mary gave birth to the Son of God. Why was that possible? Why was, what is the purpose of that? Because if he came from man, he would be born in sin. In the egg, there can't be man in there. And therefore, the egg was the only thing that was necessary for conception to take place. So the seed has to come from man. In this case, with the virgin birth, this seed came from God. 
the Holy Spirit somehow condensed Jesus into this seed and when it was conceived Mary gave birth to a sinless man sinless why because he's God and we have to understand that one thing one thing that life doesn't come from the devil life comes from God and so God came in the flesh and we'll see this in, in, in a little while but, 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 but notice that he's equal with God and the reason why he's equal with God is because he is God hands down verse 7 but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant now when you see taking the form of a bondservant that simply means what Paul now expounds by saying and coming in the likeness of men. So coming in the form of a bondservant is speaking of his flesh. Jesus was born fully man. And at the same time, fully God. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Don't you find that amazing? That God had to be obedient. Why does God have to be obedient? Good question. Because God was never in flesh before. So he had to teach and train his flesh how to be obedient. God was never in flesh before. So now, now that he put on flesh, he now had to have complete absolute rule over the container that he's in because the flesh is just a container it helps us to get around here on this planet and that's what he was put in he was put in the container in fact the Amplified Bible says of I believe of the John, John chapter 1 he pitched his tent in flesh he pitched his tent in flesh. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so even in Gethsemane, Jesus had to, had to subdue his flesh because, first of all, he's God. Jesus is God, no question about it. But again, you've got to remember, he's in flesh. So all of, all of the things that he knew that he had to go through... All of the things that he knew that he had to go through, he had to learn how to subdue his flesh to fulfill the will of God. So his flesh went through all of the earthly emotions that you and I go through. That when we know that somebody's going to kill us, we're shedding tears, we're shaking, we have those fears that rise up and Jesus had those fleshly fears that were rising up. His flesh was attempting to override the will of God and he had to subdue it. I mean, even to the point where he shed blood before he even got on the cross. He had great drops of sweat that were blood filled. He had to subdue his flesh. He had to tell his flesh, be quiet. Subdue yourself. We're going to do the will of God. But his flesh went through all of the emotions that normally go through anyone that is facing that moment of death. That moment of pain and suffering. So he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. But see, look at the reward. Look at the reward of his humbling of himself and obedience. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reward of subduing the flesh is glory. 
Because you got to remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Father, give me the glory that I once had before the world began. And so the reward was when he fulfilled the will of God, he was raised from the dead. And then he was taken up into glory to be seated by the right hand of the Father. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts the 10th chapter. God was manifested in the flesh. Look at verse 38. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil for God, watch this, for God was with him. So this ties in with his, with his name, Emmanuel. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And look at verse 20. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. But while he thought about these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. Because see, at that time, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. In other words, this wedding was on schedule. Unbeknownst to any of, of these people, this wedding, this betrothal was on schedule. Because in order for Jesus to be the son of David, he had to use Joseph as the son of David because then he would come from the tribe of Judah. And so it was prearranged. This, 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 this union between Mary and Joseph was prearranged and God knew it. And God didn't, oh, by the way, he will be the son of David and he will come out of the tribe of Judah. He was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, for he will save his people from their sins. Now I know there's a lot of talk out there, not only in the world, but also in, uh, among scholars and believers, that his name is not Jesus. His name is Yeshua, Hamashiach, and all that. We, we get it. We get it. All right. But the Greek here defines who this person is. And it's spelled in the Greek I-E-S-O-U-S -E wherein the transliteration of this name we say Jesus. So you are not unscriptural to call Jesus, Jesus. In fact, Jesus in, in the Greek also means Jehovah is salvation. So if you got a problem, I understand. It, when, we get, when, we, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. Or if you want to go a little further and we'll understand it better by and by. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Now how can a virgin be with child? Because God is God. I just don't understand that. Well, like I said, you'll understand it better by and by. For now, just accept the fact that God put Jesus in a virgin and the virgin gave birth 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, which is what we saw in the book of Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the, de of the devil. For God was with him. Which is also God with us. Go to the book of Luke chapter 1. We're just establishing... God manifested in the flesh. That's all we're doing. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Because if you, if you've seen in Scripture, you, you really want to be able to uh, go to certain scriptures to find out. Well, God, God is manifested in the flesh. All right, let's see Him manifested in the flesh. There's Scripture for this, and here in the Book of Luke, which we saw also in the Book of Acts, chapter ten, thirty-eight. Book of Matthew, chapter 1, starting in verse 23. But now here in the book of Luke, chapter 1, look at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So we're already talking about betrothed, which is an engagement present, uh, partially defined as to give a, a souvenir engagement present to woo her and ask her in marriage and then in the second definition it says to be promised in marriage so Joseph was promised Mary to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David the virgin's name was Mary and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Please note that Mary was selected out of all the women in the world to do this. Pre-selected. Ain't nothing you can do about it. So don't get jealous. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, the throne of David belongs to Joseph. But now Joseph gave birth because God said to David that there will not fail to be a man upon the throne of Israel. And here we see all these 3,793 years that Christ came to assume the throne of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now see this, if you really look at Daniel chapter 2, you will see that there is an everlasting kingdom that will come and, and of that kingdom there will be no end. And here we see Jesus coming in flesh to die for the sins of the world, which is what we saw in the book of Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 23. And his kingdom will have no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man or have had sex with a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. Sounds like a replay with Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? And this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And that's what she was, what Mary was thinking. It's impossible that I get pregnant. There's no way possible that I can get pregnant. It's impossible. But see, with God, all things are possible. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said in response, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In other words, what she was saying, I accept this high honor of birthing the Savior of the world. The angel took that as an excellent response. And there was no need for that angel, Gabriel, to stay there any longer. Go to the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. God was manifested in the flesh is the theme. At least one of six that we've read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, verse uh, 16. Look at verse 14 in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You see, the Lord is always about certain signs. But, but here we see that this sign is a mystery until now. It is no longer a mystery. It was a sign that took place. It came to pass already. That's why the end times should never be a mystery to the true child of God. I mean, one of the first things that I did was when uh, COVID manifested in the, uh, in the world and the governments, both uh, federal and state, starting with the Trump administration and then with the Biden administration, that mandates were issued and everybody couldn't get out of their house and you can't do this, you can't do that. You gotta wear a mask, you better get vaccinated and, and all this. And I said, wait a minute, this is familiar territory. So I started to go into the scriptures. I mean, never before did I go into the scriptures as I did about the end times except at that moment. And I began to just, just rely on the Holy Spirit to teach me what the end times were about. He began to, to show me exactly what I was saying in only general terms, but not with specificity. It became more clear, it became more evident. And I said, wow, we better, we better be ready because the Lord, is, is, His return is imminent. And so the Lord is always giving signs. And basically we have, what, five signs of the end times, along with other signs. You, 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 we have uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and, and verse 1, and 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. But we have these five basic signs. The five basic signs that, that, that we see is wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Those five signs is, is basically the only signs that we have left that we are as close to the end times as possible. Why? Because Jesus said it like this. He said that the end is not yet, but these are the beginning of sorrows. But now they're intensifying. So as the signs get, I mean, how many of you know that when you're driving on the road, you know, it, you, on your GPS, the, the, the thing says 10 miles to go. So you got 10 miles to go, you figure that you keep flapping your jaws, you know, not really pay attention, but then you, you, 10 miles go by very quick. You get to that one mile and it says, get ready to get off. Get ready to get off the exit. You got one mile to go. Then it says half a mile. And then it says exit. 
and you flapping your jaws or you're chomping down on your big piece of chicken and you miss the exit. You see, the signs are for a reason. It is an indication or a marker to let us know what is about to occur. So verse 14 again, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Almighty God. God in the flesh. God, the true God. That's what Emmanuel in the, in the Hebrew means. Call his name Emmanuel. Or God with us. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know for before the child shall know to refuse the good and choose the I mean refuse the evil and choose the good the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house and so forth but the fact that God weaved into what's happened with Assyria a sign of the son being born by a virgin is very powerful. It's comforting to know that God knows how to keep a secret, but also know how to reveal the secret at the right time. He keeps it a secret, but reveals it, and then it's revealed at the right time. Go to the eighth chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And look at verse 8, Isaiah 8 and verse 8. He will pass through Judah. Now remember, Jesus was born as the son of David, right? We also read in the book of Revelation that he is of the he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he came out of Judah. So guess what he's, he's doing here? He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Same word translated, God with us. Or, I like it like this, I like it this way, I like, I like the definition this way. With us is God. That's powerful. Symbolic and prophetic name of the Messiah, the Christ. Prophecy that he would be born of a virgin and would be God with us. That is the expounding of the definition. So now that we know that God is in the flesh. Now, now go to uh, 1 John. It's, it's not an, enough. I mean... Thank God for the scriptures. It's just not enough. The first first John chapter chapter one. Look at what John the uh, apostle of the Lamb says of Jesus in this passage. First John chapter one, beginning of verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled we touched him concerning the word of life the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Hey, what is John doing? Because the Noxtus were going around and saying that all the only thing that you saw of Jesus was a figment of your imagination. It's mystic. It's 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 in your mind. It didn't really happen. 
Jesus didn't really come in the flesh because one of the tests of the prophets that John gave in 1 John chapter 4 is said, test the spirits. Test them like this. Did Jesus come in the flesh? For many false prophets are among you. They're saying that Jesus never came in the flesh. Well, John is saying, you got a problem. That which we saw in the beginning. We heard him. We've seen him. And if that's not enough, we looked upon him. And if that's not enough, I touched him. You see, God manifested in the flesh was allowed to be touched by John. In fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus allowed John to lay on his bosom. So, you can talk about, well, he didn't come, he didn't exist, he's just a figment of your imaginations, but you got a problem. I'm an eyewitness. I saw him. I talked to him. I listened to him. I looked at him. I touched him. John wasn't lying. Because up to, up to this point in time, many of the apostles were dead. They were, some didn't make it past A.D. 65. Even Paul didn't make it past A.D. 70. Having been martyred in somewhere around A.D. 67. John was the only eyewitness left. And for over almost 30 years, after A.D. 67, he was still around. And you know everybody wanted to talk to John because if you've seen Jesus, we want to know. We want to talk to you. So not only do we have the scriptures given to us by God, by the Spirit of God, because all scripture is given by inspiration, but Matthew, John, and Paul, because Paul seen him on the road to Damascus, but after the resurrection, but for the most part, Matthew and John, were the, and Peter, you still have first and second Peter, you had eyewitnesses. Oh, that doesn't stop there either. You got Jude and James, the half-brothers of Jesus. So you got a lot of people, related and not related, that seen him, that touched him, that talked to him. He came in the flesh and there's no denying of it. Because see, that's a lie of the enemy to try to get us to think that Jesus is not God. We look, we've seen him. So now we move to the second part, justified in the spirit. Justified in the spirit. What, what does Jesus need justification for? Let's look at the word justified. And it's the Greek word dikaio, which is spelled D-I-K-A-I-O-O. -O, and it means to render. That is, to show regard as just or innocent. Well, what does Jesus need to be justified as just or innocent for? Well, see, when, when you're talking about justification, it's the unsaved that are justified by the one that is just. But when we're talking about justified in the spirit, we're talking about showing proof and evidence, vindication that Jesus is who he is. The, the expounding on the definition also means to render righteous or such he ought to be to show, exhibit evidence. To show, exhibit Evidence, and that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is showing and exhibiting evidence or, or events, if you will. One to be righteous, such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, the, the word invents is not evidence. So I, 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 I did not, I, I, I wrongly added the word. But the word exhibit is there. So when you're exhibiting, you're showing. And so the Spirit of God will show 
that Jesus existed in the flesh. But in furtherance of the definition, it also means to declare, pronounce one to be just, righteous or such as he ought to be. So what does, that, what does this have to do with uh, justified in the spirit? Again, exhibit. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew the third chapter. Look at verse 16. When he had been baptized, Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a light, alighting on him. The word alighting is not a lightning. It's not that. But the definition simply means to come from one place to another and used both a person's arriving. So the Holy Spirit came from heaven and came to Jesus. That's what a light, a light, a lighting means. A lighting. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now remember when John the Baptist said, Jesus, what I, what I, why do I need to baptize you? And Jesus says, suffer, it, suffer for it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. What God required was a baptism of repentance at that particular time because God sent John the Baptist. And so Jesus did not exclude himself by saying, well, I'm the son of God, so I don't need to be baptized. No. Nope. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. And then he went down in the river Jordan and John the Baptist baptized him. And then the spirit of God came on him. Which is evidence that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Again, Acts 10.38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans the first chapter and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. Remember what we saw in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 3. God came, God manifested in the flesh. So now we see Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So by these signs we see that Jesus was justified or exhibited to be the Son of God. It was necessary because it's not enough just to come in the flesh. Now he has to be justified in the spirit. So that way people can readily see that he came in the flesh. You've been listening to the Prevailing Word Podcast. We're on Apple Podcast, Amazon Podcast, Spotify, and Spreaker. The Minister's Crucible and Prevailing Word Live is on YouTube. There's exclusive content for ministers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ found at theministerscrucible.com. Follow Prevailing Word Ministries Incorporated and The Minister's Crucible on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Fred Rochester. Thanks for listening.